Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. So our portion this week is Chaye Sarah, the, <clears throat> the life of Sarah, right? Now it, it opens up with uh, speaking about Sarah's death, but it's speaking about the life of Sarah, that she lived 100 years and 20 years and seven years. And Sarah was a, a righteous woman who endured many things in her life, right? And many challenges, disappointments along the way, but yet the hope that she had was met through the promise of God, right? Where she conceived and bore Isaac. And God brought forth the promised seed through her. And in this, in this portion, we have her death and we have Abraham buying a burial, burial spot for her. And then Abraham sends out Eleazar to go and find a bride for Isaac. And that's the, that's the majority of what happens in this week's portion. And what, what was striking to me this week was the aspect of the different kinds of characters that we meet in this week's portion, right? So, of course, we have Abraham and Sarah, but we also have uh, Ephron, the, the child of Heth, and then you have uh, Rebekah, you have Laban, you have Eleazar, right? So we have many different people. And there's a big contrast between Ephron and Laban versus Eleazar, Rebekah, and Isaac. And the primary thing that I see standing out is the key difference between them is that Ephron and Laban were focused primarily on the world and the success of this world and the wealth in this arena. Whereas if you looked at Eleazar and Rebekah and Isaac, they're focused on, yes, the aspects of this world, but also they have an eternal viewpoint. They're looking at the eternal and the temporal, whereas Ephron and Laban are primarily focused just on the temporal aspects. And <clears throat> a key thing in this um, is recognizing truth and falsehood. Okay. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to, I want to start out just briefly on truth and falsehood. And I've got the two Hebrew words up here for us. So you have emet and you have sheker. All right. So emet is the word for truth and sheker is for falsehood or a lie. Okay. Now <clears throat> there's meaning within the letters of the Aleph Beit. Right. And there's all kinds of connections we can bring between words that have similarities. Like last week, I think it was, we talked about, uh, uh, well, I can't remember, tzedek, and uh, I can't remember the other word now. <laughs> but anyway, um, and they had the same letters, and there was a relationship between them. But in this case, we actually are looking at truth and falsehood and looking to see differences between these two words. And one thing that's noted with regard to truth is if you look at this word, every letter 
has a solid footing. Every letter has a solid footing. But if you look at Sheker, no letter has a solid footing. The Shin almost has a solid footing, but it comes to a point. The Kof falls below the line, and the Resh just has one leg to stand on. So if you look at falsehood, it, it's shifting, unstable in all of its letters, right? But then with truth, you have the Aleph with two feet, the Mem with the solid foundation, and the Tav with two feet. So you see stability. You see something that's not going to shake, right? And the thing about truth and falsehood is they're objective. Like when, when you look at it, they are not, uh, it's not a subjective aspect. It's like what is true versus what is false. It's just they're absolutes. Whereas if you were to talk about, say, good and bad, you're talking more in subjective terms, right? Because we could, say, we could look at something that happens in the world and say, oh, that's bad. But it may actually be good in the eyes of the Lord, you know? And so you look and you say, well, the world will call evil good and good evil. Right? Because the world is looking through a lens that is driven by their desires and their passions as opposed to according to what God's desires and passions would be. So if we're able to strip away our desires and our passions, then we can actually begin to look at things through God's lens and say, God, what do you say is true? What do you say is good? Right? Because if we remove the subjective side, then we're just left with God's will. And God's will is true. Does that make sense? So God's, God's word is true, it's perfect, it's holy. We could say it's good, but our assessment of saying it's good doesn't compare to the absolute truth that his word is true, perfect, and holy. Right? And I've been uh, listening to some teachings on, on the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's kind of part of what plays into some of these thoughts today. Um, so Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God puts a tree. Well, okay, I'm going to go ahead and go over here to uh, Genesis. We're, we're, in, we're in Genesis, but we're going to go even earlier in Genesis, right? Um, <clears throat> God takes man, and he puts him in a garden, right? And in Genesis 2... Verse 9, the Lord God caused to sprout from the ground every tree that was pleasing to the sight and good for food, also the tree of life in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, when we look at this, God says, of any tree in the garden you may eat except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And on the day you eat of it, you will die. Right? Well, then... Later on, when the serpent comes to tempt Eve, right, he asks, this is in Genesis 3, verse 1, he says, Did perhaps God say you shall not eat, any, not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman replied and said, Of the fruit of any tree of the garden we may eat. Of the fruit of the tree which is in the center of the garden, God has said you shall neither eat of it nor touch it lest you die. Okay? So now what's interesting here is that we, what we just read in Genesis 2 was that God planted a garden and in it he put the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
It doesn't say that he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the center of the garden. Now, it may have been in the center of the garden next to the tree of life. But God says the tree at the center of the garden is the tree of life. And then when the serpent tempts Eve, she says, well, the tree that's at the center of the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's interesting, right? Because she might have been speaking to some degree what was true, but there's two lenses that are being looked at. God says the tree of life, that's the central one. That's the one that is the center of the garden. And she says, well, my central focus is this one you said I can't have. Right? So there's a difference in what are we focused on and what are we looking at? And it's that subjective aspect as God says, this is the center, this is what's true. And Eve says, well, I perceive that this one is the center. Fascinating, right? And so then she takes of it and eats and her eyes are opened, her and Adam, right? And they realize they're naked and they, they hide from God's presence because they're naked. And God then punishes them for, for doing, doing wrong, right? And so we have a little bit of a challenge here because, you know, on, on one hand you could say, well, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't have any knowledge of right and wrong before they ate of it, right? But then if you say that, then you couldn't actually argue that what they did was wrong. I mean, they were told, don't eat of it. But if you don't know that it's good to obey, why is it good versus bad to obey? Like, who defined whether listening to the voice of God was the right thing to do or not if you have no consciousness of right and wrong? Right? So it becomes kind of this, I mean, we're doing a little men mental gymnastics here, but the reality is that they had, they knew what was true and what was false. Right? And they knew that they, they, had, they were accountable for their behavior because they knew that they should follow the truth and they should stay away from the falsehood. So they had some sense of right and wrong. Otherwise, God could not have held them accountable. Right? So they knew right and wrong. But the desire, because the scripture says that she looked upon the tree and saw that it was good for eating. And it was a delight to the eyes. And it was desirable. And so then there's these aspects of well, the, the truth is, I can't eat that. But my desire is to take hold of it. And so then once they took hold of the fruit and they ate, now they had the knowledge of good and evil, which is they've now experienced what their passion, what their desire is in their life. Before they just had, well, I'm doing what God says. And, and then apart from my desire. But now I had this desire that I've actualized and now I have knowledge of my own passions overruling what God says is true, right? So then you've now, you've now introduced this whole, uh, well, the self is being built up because now the desire of the self overrides the desire of God. And now once you've begun to walk in it, it becomes easier to do. Have you ever noticed that if, if there's something that's tempting, you know, like, okay, say, say there's a cookie, 
Let's, take, let's make it simple, right? There's cookies are in the, uh, the pantry and you know you don't want to eat the cookies because you're going to gain weight and you're trying not to gain weight. And you're like, I'll just have one. <laughs> you go and, and, and you break down, you have the one. Well, you're, you're probably going to have two. And even if you don't have two right now, the next time you walk by the pantry, you might be like, I got away with one. I think I'll just go ahead and open the pantry again. I mean, come on, right? So once you've actualized that giving in to yourself and your desires, it's easier to continue to walk in it. And it's the same way with, with even more grievous sins, too. Once you open the door to something, now you have the knowledge of it. And now it's become more of a drive in you. Yes? Right. Because there are people that I've met in life that wanted to experience it all. It's a very difficult life. The more you go down that road, I've had many testimonies from men that just like, I wanted to experience it all. And then like, once I got there, I wish I hadn't experienced any of it. But it's so egregious that you can't even, it's hard to function. That's why people with a strong testimony also have a strong temptation to go back down the road they went. And uh, anyway, it's just a, there, like I said, I'll be thankful that there's a lot of things in my life that never Yes, yeah. Uh, we, we should be thankful for many things we haven't experienced because, like you said, they can be certainly a snare and a, a stumbling block to us. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we've got these, uh, the aspect of truth, falsehood, and then a key thing, I think, within this, okay, so we all have a fallen nature, right? And we're all subject to the evil inclination and the desires of our flesh. But there's the aspect of nullifying those desires such that the will of God can operate in us, right? And that becomes a, well, it becomes a, it becomes a, a labor for us, right? To say, you know what? I'm going to put the self to death. I'm going to lay down that desire. I'm going to take that which I want and I'm going to set it aside so that I can actually walk in the will of God. Right? And that's, that's working out salvation with fear and trembling, if you will. Right? Because it's saying, you know what? The true path is one that is following God's will. The path of the world and even the path of the desire of my flesh is not of God's will. So, I, to walk out the true path, I have to put to death the flesh. And that's what Paul talks about when he, he talks about buffeting his body and he's training you know, he's bringing his flesh into submission such that he can then go forward and per perform the will of God. And, and within this story today, um, we see a great example of this in the life of Eliezer, Abraham's servant. Because within it, he is... He's being a faithful servant to Abraham, regardless of whatever his desires may be. All right. And let's go and take a look at this. Um, we may bounce around a little bit, but if we... Uh, if we go and take a look at Genesis 24, verse 1, we're going to read the story here of Abraham sending Eleazar. Now, okay, 
Genesis 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. All right, so... Throughout Genesis 24, we don't ever see Eliezer's name mentioned. Okay? He's referred to as the servant most of the time, and he's referred to as the man part of the time as well. And it's interesting because he starts out being called the servant, and then when he's dealing with uh, Rebecca, he's called the man. And then after he leaves Laban's house, he's called the servant again. I don't know all the meanings behind that, but I find it interesting. And there's got to be intent and purpose in there. But, um, but he's not identified by name, but it, he is identified by being Abraham's servant, the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had. Well, that's Eliezer who had been with Abraham back in Haran, right? Who, the one whom Abraham thought would inherit him when he saw that Lot wasn't a possibility and he had no offspring of his own, he said, well, Eleazar, who's in charge of all my house, he's the one who's going to inherit me, right? And then God says, no, one from within you will come forth and be your inheritor. So now, um, so Eleazar had served Abraham for many years faithfully, and he'd been with him through all of his trials along the way. And now, um, now Abraham begins to tell him, you need to go find a wife for my son Isaac. Now, it's said in tradition that uh, Eliezer had a daughter. And there was a hope that he had that perhaps his daughter could be the bride of Isaac, right? And because that would be what, a, what an illustrious uh, thing for his daughter. For even Pharaoh, back when Abraham was leaving with Sarah, said, gave Hagar as a servant to Sarah because he said, it's better for my daughter to be a servant in the house of Abraham than to be a princess in any other house, right? So, so now Abraham's telling Eliezer to go and find a daughter or find a bride for Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So here you go, right? So Eliezer says, well, what if, what if a woman won't come? You know, what then? And Abraham says, well, God's angel will go before you. But if the woman's not willing to follow, you'll be free of this oath of mine. So now if you're Eliezer, you'd be like, hmm, I could go and be unsuccessful in my journey. And then perhaps my will will be done and my daughter could actually be with Isaac, right? But that's not what Eliezer does, okay? 
So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down. Let's see. Okay. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. So Eliezer is praying for the will of his master to be done above all things. He says, let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished, finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water, water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsmen. So Eliezer is celebrating the success that God's given him along the way. And within this, within this story, you see that the angel of the Lord did go before him to prepare the way, right? He ordered the footsteps perfectly such that when Eliezer arrives and he makes a very specific prayer of how God's word will be fulfilled and revealed to him, that the first person that comes is the answer to the prayer and does exactly as Eliezer had prayed. Right. Now, what's interesting, too, in this, so the Lord is leading him. The Lord is guiding him, guiding by the Spirit and even guiding Rebecca by the Spirit as well, such that her timing would coincide with Eliezer's. And then, you know, here's someone who's gone and they've done the hard work of drawing water. And, so, and a stranger says, hey, uh, can I have some water? And so she lowers the jug, right, which is, which is work. And it's something that's, a, you know, not a convenient thing for her to do. And she gives him drink and then looks at his 10 camels and says, yeah, I can do, I can, I can water those too. Now, I can't remember the exact number, but for 10 camels, I believe it's between 100 and 150 gallons is what she would have to draw to give them sufficient drink. 
100 to 150 gallons. That's a lot of water to draw up from a well, right? And so I've, I've wondered, you know, what was it that prompted her to say, you know, I'll take care of those camels too, right? Other than an unction from the spirit of offer to do that. Now, I can imagine that she gets this unction of, hey, you should draw water for his camels too. And she's like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that that's a little over and above. God, was that really you? <laughs> and then they're like, okay, all right, I'll do it. Right now, I don't know. You know, she may have been just like absolutely willing to go, but I know with me sometimes when a, something comes up and it's like, wow, that's not very convenient. That's 20 minutes out of my way or that's, you know, going to cost me. And it's like, no. And then you get the unction again. You're like, okay, right, let's do it. <laughs> right? But you take some convincing, right? Or you need some uh, confirmation. Lord, is that really you? Because that's 100 to 150 gallons of water hard labor here to fill this up. And Eliezer sits and he watches to see if the word is being fulfilled, right? Because what if she said, I'll do that for your camels too. And she goes and she draws water and she's like, no, that's enough. Forget it, right? And so she said, but no, what she does is she says, I will do this. And she performs all that she said that she would do. In fact, what she demonstrated was a willingness to go above and beyond, right? Because he said, give me a drink. And she says, okay, I'll give you the drink but I'm gonna go above and beyond even what you asked because the righteous do what they say, right? And so she fulfilled it all the way to completion even though the task was great. In fact, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's, there's the idea that the, the righteous, they promise much and they do according to what they promised, but the wicked promise much, but they do very little, if anything at all. Because, he's also showing compassion for the animals. Yeah. yeah, she's showing compassion to him and compassion to the animals as well in doing it. So she's demonstrating a type of um, loving kindness that is, is not common, right? That goes above and beyond what this world would expect and certainly even what her family would normally do. Yeah, because we'll see in the story here that her acts of going above and beyond is not necessarily the same as what her brother's uh, inclination is, right? So she goes above and beyond, but we can contrast that with what happens with Laban if we just look at the next verses that follow here in Genesis 24, verse 28. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and, he, and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have, what I have to say. And he said, speak on. Now, just a moment ago, I said that Laban did not act with the same kind of loving kindness that Rachel did. But if we read the story here at the high level, um, he says, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. And it says, 
So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels and water to wash his feet. And it sounds like Laban is going and, you know, unharnessing the camels and bringing, you know, feeding the camels and washing the feet of the people. But within the text, it doesn't actually appear that Laban is the one who's doing all this. Okay? And where this comes from, you know how I mentioned that Eleazar is referred to as the servant over and over, and then he becomes referred to as the man, Haish? Okay? That's what we're actually seeing here. And it, actually, this translation gets it right on where it says, so the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels. Well, the man is Eleazar, not Laban. Okay? So if uh, I'm going to go back here and just highlight this. Okay, so in, in Genesis 24, verse 26 is the first time that it says, Haish. So, so the man bowed low and prostrated himself to the Lord. Right? And then the maiden ran and told her mother, about the man, okay? Um, and, okay, and so then even in verse 20, in verse 30, when it says, he approached the man, Haish, who was standing by the camels, and he said, come and do this. And it says, so Haish entered the house and unmuzzled the camels. He gave straw and feed for the camels and water to bathe his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him. Okay, so... There's this pause where Laban says, look, I, I've got the whole house ready for you and the place ready for your camels. And he says, you're on your own. <laughs> so then Eliezer comes in and takes the things off the camels. So Laban was giving a good show, but he wasn't going to follow up and complete the things that he said he'd, he would do. In a way, he kind of did, but he didn't go the extra mile with as, as Rachel, I mean, as Rebecca was doing in service. So then Eliezer had to do it on his own. And, and we know that this is in line with Laban's character from what we see later on in the story with how he treated Jacob, right? Continually lying over and over and changing his wages. What was it, a hundred times? And uh, so, so Laban was one who spoke a good game but wasn't willing to go the extra mile. And so Rebecca, being one who would act in loving kindness, and going above and beyond, that, that really designated something unique and specific about her that was in line with the character and nature of Sarah that revealed her as one who was fitting as a bride for Isaac. Right? And so, so Eliezer was able to see and discern that God had made his journey successful. But then there was still the next aspect of, well, will the family give her? So that we can take her as a bride for Isaac. And, and so when, uh, when Eliezer retells the story to Laban and Bethuel of how everything played out, he changed the order of the story up a little bit of how things went in order to, I guess, tap into what, what were the desires of Laban and Bethuel. You know, what, what really mattered most to them? Because on the way on the journey, Eliezer's talking about God doing loving chesed 
and truth, right? Doing loving kindness and truth to his master Abraham. And then he watches to see, okay, is this really the woman? And he gives her the bracelets and everything. And he says, whose family are you of? And it's confirmed that it's the family of Abraham. Then he goes in. Well, when he starts to tell Laban and Bethuel about it, he doesn't talk about loving kindness. He only talks about the success that he was given and the wealth and the riches of Abraham. So he's, he's recognized that Laban isn't the one who really cares so much about kindness and chesed, right? He'll talk it, but he won't do it. So instead he talks about the money because that's what Laban had responded to in the first place. Look at all these riches. Perhaps there's riches for me. Yes. He's got a what? Yeah, he's got a little bit of Ephron. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, very much so. Very much. And so, well, I think we'll, we'll, re- we'll swing back to Ephron here in just a, a minute um, for that very purpose, right? That, that that element was in there. Now, one thing that I find interesting in this is that he tells them, look, Abraham's got all this wealth. Isaac is going to inherit all of Actually, Isaac has already inherited all of it. Abraham's given it all to him, and now here it is. And and God's given success. And then when, he's t- when he says how, it's, how things happened, he says, I asked her whose family she was of. And she said, of Nahor. And so then I gave her the bracelets. So again, there's this, okay, I'm going to go ahead and cater to how you see the importance of your family and the importance that you see of your wealth as opposed to God's will and what has God designated. But then what's, what's interesting Laban, in verse 50 of Genesis 24, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter stemmed from, from the Lord. We can say to you neither good or no, neither bad nor good. Now that's interesting, right? Because we can't say, I, what I feel like he, he's saying in this is, you know, we can see the truth of what God's doing here. So it's not up to our subjective good or bad desire we're going to actually give, you know, we're actually going to give her as a bride according to what the truth of God has done. Interesting, right? And later on, when, when Laban's coming to overtake Jacob, when Jacob is fleeing, God appears to him and says, do not speak to him either good or bad. It's always like, why does he say don't speak to him good or bad? He's like, don't speak to him according to your desires, according to your will, you're going to go and speak to him according to my will. At least that's the way I see it. Yeah, we're, we're Balaam, right? Very much Balaam was seeking to do his desires, but trying to do it under the guise of, well, God gave me permission, right? So he's trying to say my desire, my good. I'm trying to say that's God's truth, right? Yeah, very, very good point. Yeah. I'm sorry, come again? There's no confirming spirit. That spirit doesn't confirm what is being said. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They, they didn't get confirmation of the spirit that, that built up the spiritual, the spiritual confirmation of what was true. They weren't getting, right? That Billam wasn't getting that. Um, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, so you actually need confirmation by the spirit to recognize what the truth is. And you need the guidance of the spirit as you go, right? And that's really what Eliezer was doing when he was going. He was trusting God to guide him by the Spirit. And then God was moving through him, through Rebecca, and then even 
showing Laban and Bethuel ultimately what they needed in order to say, yes, we will give her as a, as a bride to Isaac. Um, but God went, God went before them to make their way successful. And, and Eleazar, now interestingly enough, we talked, uh, Paul mentioned earlier about the importance of the Spirit, right? And, and now, actually both Pauls talked about the Spirit, right? And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, two, 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 two Pauline witnesses. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, we, we've got this storyline of Eleazar going at Abraham's command to go and find a, a, a bride for Isaac. And he goes to find Isaac, or the bride for Isaac and he brings her back. He's successful on the journey because God led. But we, we have a picture, too, of the working of the Spirit at a, a really a, a macro level as well. So if you look at the storyline of what took place, in last week's portion, we saw Isaac who willingly gave of himself to be laid on the altar, right? Doing his father's will. So he was offered up on the altar. After that, what we see is that Sarah dies. And then Abraham sends, a sends Eliezer to go find a bride for Isaac. Okay, now Eliezer, Eliezer means God of help. Okay, now... If we think about the parallels we talked about of Yeshua and Isaac being offered up and Yeshua willingly gave his life according to the will of the Father, well then after Yeshua, after he really dies, right, then of course he's resurrected, right, but let's, we'll, let's save that for a moment. What he promised to do is that he said that he would send the Spirit, right, to go and be in the disciples so that they could then go and find others and spread the news of the kingdom throughout all the earth, right? And so then the Spirit empowers them to speak the word in boldness and in truth, building up a bride for Messiah, right? So Yeshua dies. Yeshua is offered up. He dies. He sends the Spirit into his followers so that they can go and do the work of the Spirit in bringing together a whole body who will be a bride unto Messiah. So now here's Eliezer, the God of help, who, you know, which the helper, the Holy Spirit, comes to seek out the bride, to build up the bride. And the bride is known by her righteous deeds and by her loving kindness and her willingness to walk in the truth and the willing to go, willingness to go even just as Abraham did, right? Because she had to leave her family and go to a land that was not her own for an inheritance that God was leading her into, right? So, so then she, she's going, Eliezer's bringing her back, and what do we have? We have, we have, Isaac coming up to meet her. Okay, so this is in uh, Genesis 24, verse 62. Rebekah is coming, but Isaac says, Now Isaac had returned, or was coming up from Bear Lahai Roy, okay, which is the well of the living one who appeared to me, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant 
Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, why, do I, why am I talking about this? If we go back to the binding of Isaac, right? Abraham had told his servants, the boy and I are going to go and we're going to offer, and then we'll return. Okay, But in the scriptures, it doesn't actually say that Abraham and Isaac came back. It's that the scriptures say that Abraham came back and then went with his servants. And then Sarah dies. And there's no mention of Isaac from the time of the binding until this point when he's coming up from Be'er Lachai Roi. Okay? The well of the living one who appeared to me. And so the sages looked at this and said, well, why was Isaac missing? Like, where, where was he in coming back from the offering? Where was he at Sarah's burial, at her funeral, right? Because it only talks about how Abraham bewailed her. But where's Isaac? And now he appears when his bride's coming back. And so, according, well, there, there's various opinions as to what was going on. Was he, in the, was he with Shem and Eber learning the ways of the Lord? Um, or was he with Abraham the whole time? Just the Torah didn't mention it. But there are some midrashes that actually speak of Isaac having gone to Gan Eden, to paradise, where he was for three years. And then this is when he returned from Gan Eden, was at the time that his bride was being brought to him. Now that sounds pretty fantastical. It sounds a little far-fetched, right? And as I've said before, <laughs> as I've said before, you know, when we talk about the Midrash and, and talk about these teachings of the sages, it's not an aspect of, well, is that true? Did he really go to Gan Eden? But, or were the sages tapping into something that was beyond their understanding and saying he was in Gan Eden? Because this actually would give a picture, a further step in our, in our picture here of what was going on with Yeshua. Right, who, offered, who was offered up, died, sends the Spirit to go and find a bride for himself. And that he will, re, and right now he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's in Gan Eden. But there's, he's going to be coming back. He's going to be coming back from Gan Eden to find a bride who has made herself ready, who has come and said, I'm going to do the will of the Lord. I'm going to walk in loving kindness. I'm going to walk in righteousness and in truth. A bride without spot or wrinkle. And then he meets her there, right? So fascinating how that can tie into the picture to kind of complete an aspect of the puzzle of a bride being brought. Now, um, interestingly enough, you know, Yeshua died and his body was a temple, right? His, his temple died. Um, and within that, Sarah's tent the sages said, had some miracles that came along with it, which was actually a picture of the tabernacle, of the temple, in that her dough was blessed. There were candles that were lit from Shabbat to Shabbat. And uh, there was one other thing. Um, the, the, the divine presence hung over her tent, right? You know, within the temple, with the showbread. After, after one week, 
the showbread, showbread would be taken off of the, of the table and it would be eaten and it would still be hot according to tradition. Right? It would still be warm. And so you had the dough was always blessed. You had the light of the menorah that continued. The westernmost candle didn't go out and the presence of the Lord was there. So Sarah's tent was kind of a picture of that. And so Sarah dying, it was a picture of the temple. His death and that of Yeshua. So it's fascinating if we put the parallels together there and how this was really a foreshadowing of how God's intent to bring forth a, a bride sending the helper to go and find the bride, to prepare the bride and bring her back to her bridegroom. And again, this within this aspect of a bride that's preparing herself, right? There has to be the willingness of laying aside her own desires, our own desires, those things that, that we say are good or bad, and saying, Lord, I'm willing to negate myself in order to be led by your Spirit, to follow your Spirit, and to walk in the truth that you've given and to go to the place that you've called us to go. Yes. Yeah, that's absolutely right, is that um, for those who are listening online, Paul was talking about the aspect of how the, the core, the center of the marriage here with, with Isaac and Rebecca was their covenant faithfulness to one another, and then everything else followed and how they got to know each other, love each other, walk together through everything. But it starts with what is the core, what is the... The, the true basis upon which they are relating with one another. And, uh, you know, the world looks at it as, well, the center is this affection, emotion called love, right? But that's not what the center of a marriage is. The center of a marriage is the covenant commitment, a decision to love one another that will last forever, right? And so, yeah, there's actually two trees there, right, if you will. Um, it's which one is the center. Do you really believe that it's your emotion and your feelings? Because that's not what it is. It's really about a covenant. It's about a commitment. And, and that's what lasts beyond the emotions which are fickle. So really, if you, if you look at things right, um, emotions and the heart are deceptive above all things, right? They're really tied into the sheker, the falsehood, because they can sway. They're not on solid footing. But then the truth, the emmet, the chesed, the covenant, that's your, that's, your, that's your core, that's your rock. And we sang about it uh, earlier, about just the faithfulness of God and how we can trust in Him because He is on sure footing. His word is true. It is not on shifting sand, right? It's on, a, it's on the rock. I like how you tied it back to two trees. That's very true. Yeah. Yep. If our focus is on all the things that we can find that are wrong, 
-hmm. Right. Yeah, if, if our center, if our center is self, as opposed to our center being God, then we're off, right? He is the center. He is the focus. He is true and his word is true. And that's where we have to be led by the spirit to discern what is true. What does God say is right? And then we nullify the self, right? Betul Hayesh is the, the term for that nullification of what we are um, in order to become what God said we're to be, right? To really regain what was lost there in the garden, right? With that perspective. Um, you know, I said that we might come back to Ephron and hmm. okay, I, I will go back there briefly. <laughs> um, so Ephron, so, so our the portion opened up right with Abraham looking to have a place to bury Sarah, and when he so Abraham comes to the children of Heth, and in Genesis twenty three verse three. The scripture says that Abraham rose up in the presence of, uh, okay, yeah, here we we'll, Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So he acknowledges that he's a stranger in a strange land, right? That it's their land that he is in. But he says, give me a possession an Ahuza before you, right? So this is, a, this is ancestral land of the Hittites. And he's saying, I want to buy that ancestral land. That's a big deal. It's not like what we have today where it's like, yeah, you got a house over here on Main Street and you sell it and it has no ties to you and your history or anything like that. It's just you bought it and now you're selling it. It's just a parcel of land. Back here, the idea was much more of these are this is an ancestral inheritance passed down from generation to generation. So for someone to sell it would be a big deal. So he says, but get, I want a possession from among you. I want to buy land from you that will be mine in perpetuity to bury my dead. And the Hittites answered him and they said, Here is my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, what did they respond? They said, yeah, you can bury your dead in one of our tombs. We're not going to tell you you can't do that. They didn't say, we'll sell you land. They said, we're not going to keep you from burying your dead. Come on, go ahead and do it. But Abraham you know, rose up and he said uh, to them, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah uh, which he owns, it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So he says, no, I want to buy this specific burial place. Like, why did he choose that one? Okay, we'll talk about it a little bit. But, but he, he, he chose, actually, okay, we'll go ahead and talk about it. He chose this specific cave, according to the Midrash, that, okay, there's one Midrash that speaks about after, um, after Abraham's circumcision, when the three men came to him, 
and he said, I'm going to, you know, kill a goat and we'll bring it to you. That uh, the, the, the calf wandered off, or it's a calf, I think. The calf wandered off and it actually, they tracked it down there right outside this cave and that Abraham discerned that this was a special cave, um, that there were candles lit and a pleasing fragrance there and that he recognized that it was the place of Adam and Eve's burial at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And that's why he chose that one specific spot for the burial place, because it was, it was the place of connection between the heavenly and the earthly. It was a place of inheritance as the one who was renewing, the one who would bring forth seed that would renew creation to be tied into this place of resurrection, this place of restoration. And so, again, connecting the physical and the spiritual and seeking the eternal viewpoint of this death of Sarah isn't the end, but there's a resurrection to come, right? And so, in the cave of Machpelah means double, and it, some say it's because of the couples who are buried there, Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, and Jacob and Leah, right? Um, yes? Uh, this is this is part of the tradition of, yeah, it's a traditional story that that was their burial place. So going back as far as that time of contemporaneously, or was it was it kind of worked out later on? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. But but that's that's the uh, that's the tradition according to what's been passed down through the generations. Now now he says he wants to buy it. And Ephron, he was sitting there, and he says in verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. So Ephron, it's like, I'll give you... Abraham asked to buy the cave, and Ephron says, I give you the field and the cave together. And then Abraham bowed down before the people, and he said to Ephron, In the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. So now Abraham's like, no, I, I want to purchase this. I want it to be a legal transaction where I have a possession, an inheritance. It's not one that you can say, well, I'm, I'm going to take it back. You know, I give it to you. No, I don't really give it to you. And then Ephron's response, he says, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What's that between you and me? bury your dead. That's just 400 shekels. 400 shekels doesn't sound like a whole lot, but then when we read on and see that he counted out 400 shekels according to the weights current among the merchants. It's like this is in legal tender. The Talmud says that that was actually uh, each one, each shekel in the legal tender of the merchants was a centenario, which was 2,500 of the common shekel. So you do the math there real quickly, and it's 1 million common shekels that Ephron said. He's like... One million shekels, what's that between you and me? Right? One million of anything is a lot. Okay. <laughs> Think, one, one million pennies, one million pennies, which, I mean, is $10,000. Okay? So it's like, wow, Chris, that's a nice watch. I'd like to buy that watch from you. What, that? I give it to you along with my jacket. You know? No, no, I, I, I you know, well, you know, for a million pennies. I'll give you this. You know, I mean, what's a million pennies for that? You know, come on. It's like you're asking for a, a, an exorbitant price for this. What's that? It was supposedly 
Above market value. <laughs> yeah, it was above. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he paid above market value, and he didn't negotiate, and he had witnesses, and they get it all. You know, it's a totally legitimate purchase. And in normal times, ordinarily, Abraham would have been a, a great negotiator because he, he was. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. He was a great merchant. Yeah. Yeah, he would have been, but he didn't. Yeah, and uh, it said that the, the the side of the Temple Mount. Uh, 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 Jacob's well, or was it tomb? And, and Machpelah are three places that were bought without negotiating in legal currency within the land. Um, so this was one of those places. But anyway, so, so one million shekels. So again, it was the picture of Ephron being like, well, what really matters to me is the money, but I'm going to put up a good show. I give it to you, but give me a million shekels, right? <laughs> So the, the wicked, they promise much, but do very little. Whereas the righteous uphold their word, go above and beyond, walking in loving kindness and truth with their neighbor to fulfill their word because that actually reveals us as the bride being made ready. So, yeah, Balaam and Ephron, yeah, would have been buds. Uh, Laban too, right? Laban means white. How hypocritical. But... Um, <laughs> He acted righteous, but, you know, he acted white, clean, pure. He didn't exactly fulfill that. But anyway, but, but for, for us, for our calling, right, is, is to remove from ourselves our desire so that we can be led by the Spirit and walk in the truth that God has laid out before us and looking, with it, looking at things with God's perspective of what is the eternal significance as opposed to what is the temporal Whereas Laban and Ephron looked at what can I gain in this world, in this life? What's my success? Eleazar, Rebecca, and Isaac, they all walked with what's the will of my master? What's the will of God? How can I be one who loves well and walks in righteousness? And that's our calling, to be that bride led by the Spirit, being made ready for our Messiah who one day will return. Amen. Now, Jared's going to come up and talk about the upcoming month of Kislev. But before he does that, let me just say a short prayer. Lord, we love you and we bless you. We exalt you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that you sent the angel before Eleazar to prepare the way and to cause him to be successful, Lord. And we look to you and the guidance of your spirit, Lord, to lead us in the path that you have set before us that we could walk in righteousness, that we could seek your truth, that we could overcome the evil inclination that would tempt us to set our focus on something other, some other, something that you have not called the center, but that we call the center, Lord, that we would turn from that and we would say, God, what have you said is at the center? The tree of life is at the center. Life through Yeshua, your son, is at the center. And may we walk as those who are worthy of the calling which, which, with which we have been called. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and we pray these things and bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.